0: Hello and welcome to your San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. Now that San Diego is in the red tier, schools have the green light to reopen. We'll talk to Kristen Takeda about that. Then, should the Andrew Jackson Post Office in Rolando be renamed, Charles T. Clark will share his thoughts. First, the news. Wednesday marked the return of indoor operations in San Diego County. With the county's re-entry into the red tier, restaurants, gyms, movie theaters, and museums are able to have people inside again at reduced capacities. The milestone came on the one-year anniversary of restaurants being ordered to shut down indoor operations amid a growing pandemic. Under the red tier restrictions, restaurants and movie theaters will be limited to 25% capacity indoors, while fitness facilities are capped at 10%. Outdoor live entertainment venues, including Petco Park, can open at 20% capacity, and amusement parks like Legoland and Disneyland can open at 15% occupancy starting April 1st. The San Diego Black Nurses Association is trying to vaccinate Black residents in San Diego by administering shots at churches and community centers. So far, the association has vaccinated nearly 1,100 residents in southeastern San Diego since mid-February. Around the county, less than three percent of those who have been vaccinated are black, according to the latest county data. Technology organizer XPRIZE named five winners of its six million dollar rapid covid testing competition on Tuesday, and three of them are from San Diego County. ChromaCode and Reliable LFC, both of Carlsbad, joined the La Jolla Institute for Immunology as local winners in the challenge. The challenge was to develop, quote, radically affordable and accurate COVID testing platforms with turnaround times of no more than 12 hours from sample to result. Each winner is guaranteed $500,000. They will receive an additional $500,000 if they hit milestones for mass producing their COVID-19 tests. Now that San Diego County is in the red tier, all public and private schools can reopen. Under California's reopening rules, elementary schools were already allowed to be open, but this clears the way for middle schools and high schools. Some have taken advantage of that and opened immediately, offering one or two days of in-person instruction. Others are waiting or setting reopening dates for next month. Kristen Takeda covers K-12 education at the UT. Okay, Kristen, I mean, now that we're in the red tier... Schools do have a green light to reopen. Uh, Are are most districts or do most districts have reopening plans and reopening dates in place? Uh, Just as a region, how are we doing?
1: Yeah, so most districts actually are already open to some degree and they've already brought back um, some grade levels of students. And then there are some that uh, have still yet to reopen, but overwhelmingly most districts most of those districts that are still closed have dates to reopen. A lot of them are reopening next month in April, so we should, by next month, be seeing, like, most uh, most school districts being open.
0: I know the state offered that $6.6 billion in incentive funding to get schools open sooner than later. Has that motivated schools to reopen locally?
1: Um, yeah, so actually, um, some of that money is for Uh, specifically working on learning loss among students and then some of it is for that um, purpose you mentioned which is getting schools to reopen and so yeah it does seem to um, a lot of those school districts here in San Diego do seem to be opening uh, on the timeline that would allow them to take advantage of most of that incentive funding or all of that incentive funding so um, it does seem like our that is something that school districts uh, do seem to be wanting to take advantage of in reopening sooner.
0: I read in your story that they lose money every day, they remain closed past April 1st. And if they don't open by May 15th, they miss out on that funding entirely. Are there any schools in the region that you're aware of that might miss out on this funding entirely?
1: Yeah, there's at least one school district, South Bay Union, that um, actually doesn't plan to go back to school until the start of the next school year, which for them is in late July. So they're the school district I've seen that's had the latest reopening date announced. And yeah, they seem to be um, a rarity in the county in terms of um, opening later. So yeah, if they open in July, they would they would probably they would miss out on that incentive funding.
0: San Diego Unified has a reopening date of April 12th, and I know that this was contingent on reaching the red tier, which we're now in, and also getting teachers vaccinated uh, as well as staff. I mean, have those teachers and staff who wanted vaccines received them at this point to stay on track with that reopening date?
1: Yeah, I, it looks to be that way. According to district officials, they believe that um, teachers have had uh, enough time to get fully vac to get their first doses so they can get fully vaccinated with their second dose by the time, they go back to school for that April 12th reopening date. And the county has been setting aside um, 20% of vaccines for school staff. And um, school staff have also been getting their own um, reserved appointments for uh, vaccines. So it has been um, for the school staff who did want to get vaccinated, it's been general it seems to have been generally pretty uh, smooth in terms of them getting their vaccine appointments.
0: And what if teachers choose not to be uh, vaccinated are schools mandating that
1: no schools are not mandating vaccines um and actually a lot of schools are not even monitoring like how many of their staff are getting vaccinated but um yeah so it's leaving it up to the school staff but um schools when they do reopen staff will be required to come back to school whether they are vaccinated or not so it's really a personal choice for the staff. But um, in general, what I've been hearing from school staff is that, yeah, they do want to get
0: vaccinated. So when schools do reopen, we've been hearing about this hybrid model. Uh, You know, it won't be six hours a day, five days a week on campus, but what will it look like?
1: Yeah, it really depends on the school district. A lot of them are taking different approaches to it. Some are going back for two days a week, a student could get up to two days a week of in-person instruction. Some, it might be as few as one day a week. And then we also have school districts that have already been open for a while that are now scaling up from like say two days a week to four or five days a week. So it's really very um, varied across the county. But in general, the ones that are opening up now or next month, they're going to be um, starting out small um, and that's partly because they need to uh they say they need to reduce the number of students on campus so that they could have more room in classrooms to do social distancing and they also just want to start out smaller because they don't want to rush into a full reopening and then have to scale back or close schools in case there's a lot of covid cases that show up
0: I mean, is there a plan or some kind of blueprint to get students back in the classroom full-time as they were before? I think that's the
1: uh, end goal for pretty much every district, but how soon every district is going to get there is going to be very different. Um, and for some districts, they might want to wait until case rates go down even further or until they can prove that until they've already reopened and can prove that they can safely operate with their say two days a week or four days a week hybrid model first. Um, But yeah, there are some other districts that have already been open for a while and they they feel like that they have been able to
0: uh, move forward with full time in person learning. So if San Diego County dips into the purple tier again, does that mean schools will close again? And I mean, is it possible that districts could just sort of bounce between open and close for the foreseeable future?
1: So I'm, it looks like that. um, Well, first of all, now that we're in the red tier, we have a minimum three weeks before uh, where schools can reopen, um, even if we do dip back into purple tier rates during that time. So we have that minimum three weeks. And then um, the way the state has handled school reopenings up to this point is that in general, if a school reopens, they are not going to be forced to close again if rates get worse. Um, What happens is they just prevent any schools that haven't opened already from reopening if the case rates get worse. So it's likely that Um, yeah, they wouldn't be, schools wouldn't be forced to close again because they've already been open, but uh, schools that haven't reopened by that time would lose their chance to do so.
0: Now let's turn to opinion. Charles T. Clark is a columnist at the UT writing about the intersection of identity and civic life. So Charlie, you wrote about changing names on buildings. Here locally in San Diego, there is the case of a post office named after Andrew Jackson that some people want to see changed. And also we had um, high school students successfully petitioned to change the name of their high school from uh, Junipero Serra High School to, is it Canyon High? Uh,
2: yes, I think Canyon Hills. Or Canyon like Hills
0: High. In general, though, when do you think it's appropriate to change the name of a building, monument, etc.?
2: Yeah, well, I, you know, it's kind of a tricky thing, right? I think it kind of depends on your community, right? And, and really, whenever these conversations are kind of sparked, right, usually they're sparked by some individual who kind of is like, hey, that doesn't seem quite right. Um, and they start talking about it. And then I think at that point, it's important to at least have a, a, an honest conversation about it, right? Because sometimes, yeah, maybe it won't have much merit, um, or it's a bit more complicated, right? Like, say, you know, if, if people wanted to change the name of something named after George Washington, you know, inherently I get why that is a more complicated conversation to have, right? Do um, you know what he contributed to the country versus, you know, some other people who obviously I focused on. Um, but generally I think kind of what I think of is just, as times change, so should we, right? Um, and just because you held something up as a value in a previous generation of our society, doesn't necessarily mean it was right and doesn't necessarily mean it's something that we want to amplify going forward. Um, So I think when it comes up, it's worth at least engaging in an honest dialogue about it.
0: A big argument, you know, on the other side is that changing names of things and taking down monuments, um, by doing that, you erase history. Do you think that's the case?
2: Uh, Not at all, um, to to be quite honest. And, And I don't say that to be you know, quickly dismissive or, or glib about it. Um, but I, I just think it's kind of a silly excuse, right? Because I'm mean, going to take the Andrew Jackson example, right? I would venture a guess most of us knew who Andrew Jackson was, and it wasn't because there was a post office named after him, right? Like you learn about him in your history textbooks. He's still going to be taught. There's still, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of books written about the man that if you want to learn about him, you can. Um, the real issue, right? is is that the person we wanna hold up and just kind of put up there as this person to be honored, right? You don't put a name of someone up there absent of context um, unless you are honoring them, right? And, And someone like him, I do think is inherently a much more problematic person, right? Not just because he was a slave owner, which yes, for someone like me as a black man, I find inherently difficult with all of these guys, Um, But even more so with him, you know, it's the combination of something in that it wasn't just that, right? It was an active attempt to exterminate a group of people um, who have been here since this country's, you know, well before it even existed. Um, And he did it gleefully and aggressively. um, And that harm is still being felt today and still being remembered in, you know, uh, Native American communities across this country today. Um, and then with someone like him, right, especially here in California, if that person has nothing to do with your state or community, why do we care about honoring him to begin with? Um, and that's kind of where it really came down to it for me, especially with this issue.
0: Another criticism is about cancel culture. Um, do you see that sort of getting out of hand at all?
2: Um, <laughs> you know, I I struggle a bit with that. Um You know, I did write a column about cancel culture, quote. um, And to be frank, I go back and forth about whether I really believe it's a thing um, in the way that people typically think of it, right? I think people like to use it as a buzzword. But if you really reflect on people who have been, quote, canceled, they really haven't been canceled, right? I mean, I I think of someone like Louis C.K., right? Louis C.K. was, quote, canceled. And what six months later was doing sold out stand up comedy tours. Well, no, that clearly cancel culture can't be a thing if he wasn't actually canceled. Now, there are other cases, right, where I think of something like, say, you know, more than a decade ago when the band formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, were, right, were essentially blackballed for simply making a comment about how they didn't support the Iraq war and they were ashamed the president was from Texas. That is an actual case of someone being unjustly kind of canceled. And the idea of what people think of as cancel culture, right, is the censoring this, just because you said an opinion, you don't get to do anything. That's an actual example of it. But in the modern era, we don't really get that as often. Most of these times, even people who are de-platformed, they usually just go to another platform, right? Gina Carano um, got fired from Star Wars for some, let's just say, problematic comments she has made. In comparisons well she very quickly right signed on to a deal with ben shapiro and the daily wire to make her own movie right like is she really canceled if she quickly found employment again and you know is going to be making millions of dollars anyway I, I i don't know i i think you know re- returning to the topic of monuments though in particular right and and naming things I think it's kind of a cop-out to just say, oh, because people don't like, you know, Andrew Jackson, they're canceling him, right? It's a bit more nuanced than that, right? It's not about a difference of opinion. It's about what a person's actual actions were, right? And I think of it in terms of accountability. Um, You know, if it was just, oh, uh, you know, Andrew Jackson had a different opinion over what welfare, you know, things should be provided yeah that's kind of a silly thing to remove someone's name for but if the difference of opinion was I believed a certain group of people were inferior to me and I went out of my way to try to kill them I I think it's like ridiculous that we're even having a conversation about that being you know anything other than accountability
0: well who, who are some San Diegans that you think deserve recognition but haven't gotten it yet
2: Right. So there's, you know, an awful lot of people. I mean, I'm a transplant here, to, to be quite frank. So most of the people I know are just people I've gotten to know over the last few years or have learned about. Um, but, you know, in my column, I kind of mentioned two examples just that happened within the past year, right? In, in Bob Matthews, who was kind of a behind the scenes, um, really prominent civil rights activist who never sought the spotlight. He, he created the MLK Day Parade. You know, he was literally one of the guys who put the shovel in the ground and did the work of building the Jackie Robinson YMCA. I'm like, that's someone in our community who really I think represents what we all aspire to, um, irrespective of race. Um, You know, someone who really gave of themselves to try to uplift other people in our community. I think that's someone to be commended. Um, You know, similarly, uh, Larry Baza, right, who who passed away uh, just in the past few weeks here, is someone who, although I didn't know personally, I know who has left a tremendous, you know, footprint here in San Diego as not only someone who is, you know, this real hero for the art scene, um, but also for the LGBTQ community, right? Someone who spoke up for them, even when it wasn't as mainstream as it is now, or, you know, people aren't as accepting as they are now. Um, And he went and fought for their rights, not only here, but, you know, in, in other places across the country. I think those are people who really, at least to me, embody the kind of values that, I would like to see, um, you know, really uplifted more in San Diego. Charlie, something that strikes me
0: about your column uh, is just the history you uncover. It's really incredible. Every time I read it, I learn a lot about it. In this last column, you wrote something about um, a park in Pacific Beach being renamed after Fannie and William Payne. William Payne was the first Black teacher at Pacific Beach Middle, and at one point, locals didn't think the school needed a black teacher and petitioned to have him removed. I don't know how that story turned out. I hope he kept his job. But it's like you dig up these things about our community um that are oftentimes unfortunate. And so like how does that shape your perception and the way you think about San Diego?
2: Yeah, you know, I it's kind of interesting coming in as a outsider to this community, to be to be quite frank. You know, I used to come here a lot growing up, but I, I'm not from here. Um but You know, oftentimes, I'm a firm believer in owning up to our history, right, and kind of recognizing that you really can't move forward or address a lot of the issues that we still see today, unless you acknowledge, you know, kind of where they came from and get a better understanding of it. Um, And also, as I I, I like to say, you know, to be quite frank, I I think of my dad, um, who's a black man who was born south of the Mason-Dixon line, pre-Civil Rights Act, right? So, that's not even, you know, a generation removed from me. And I I always think about him because of the fact when you look at a lot of these history things, right, they really aren't that far removed, right? Uh, What, you know, the the case we mentioned, right, with, you know, Pacific Beach Middle, that, you know, there are a lot of people alive today who were either kids right there watching that happen um, or adults who, you know, have very, you know, clear memories of it. And to pretend that those things didn't happen or don't impact kind of the conversations we we have, I think is kind of malpractice. Um and it it really kind of allows people to kind of skirt around, um, I guess just really understanding other people's perspectives in a way, right? Um, you know, I, I think of things like I, I spent a lot of my formative years in Arizona, and this is a bit of a digression, but You know, I I look at things like if you look at Arizona and a lot of what's happening in the activist community there, well, it's really directly traced to essentially kids my age who grew up in Joe Arpaio's Arizona, right? Uh, Mexican kids who were, saw their parents and their grandparents and sometimes themselves harassed um, in just a really overtly racist way by Sheriff Joe. And now that informs a lot of, you know, the policies and things that they try to promote. And it, it informs a lot of kind of the progress you see here in Arizona. And I don't think you get that unless people really recognize the history.
0: You can find these stories online at SanDiegoUnionTribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.